Chapter Thirty Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Chapter Thirty Four. The Yankee and the King sold as slaves. Well, what had I better do? Nothing in a hurry, sure. I must get up a diversion, anything to employ me while I could think, and while these poor fellows could have a chance to come to life again. There sat Marco, petrified in the act of trying to get the hang of his miller-gun, turned to stone, just in the attitude he was in when my pile-driver fell, the toy still gripped in his unconscious fingers. So I took it from him and proposed to explain its mystery. Mystery! A simple little thing like that! and yet it was mysterious enough for that race and that age. I never saw such an awkward people with machinery. You see, they were totally unused to it. The miller-gun was a little double-barreled tube of toughened glass, with a neat little trick of a spring to it, which upon pressure would let a shot escape. But the shot wouldn't hurt anybody. It would only drop into your hand. In the gun were two sizes, wee mustard-seed shot, and another sort that were several times larger they were money. The mustard-seed shot represented mill-rays, the larger ones mills, so the gun was a purse, and very handy, too. You could pay out money in the dark with it, with accuracy, and you could carry it in your mouth, or in your vest-pocket, if you had one. I made them of several sizes, one size so large it would carry the equivalent of a dollar. Using shot for money was a good thing for the government, the metal cost nothing, and the money couldn't be counterfeited, for I was the only person in the kingdom who knew how to manage a shot-tower. Paying the shot soon came to be a common phrase. Yes, and I knew it would still be passing men's lips away down in the nineteenth century, yet none would suspect how and when it originated. The king joined us about this time, mightily refreshed by his nap, and feeling good. Anything could make me nervous now. I was so uneasy, for our lives were in danger and so it worried me to detect a complacent something in the king's eye which seemed to indicate that he had been loading himself up for a performance of some kind or other. Confound it, why must he go and choose such a time as this? I was right. He began, straight off, in the most innocently artful and transparent and lubberly way, to lead up to the subject of agriculture. The cold sweat broke out all over me. I wanted to whisper in his ear, Man, we are in awful danger. Every moment is worth a principality till we get back these men's confidence. Don't waste any of this golden time. But of course I couldn't do it. Whisper to him? It would look as if we were conspiring. So I had to sit there and look calm and pleasant while the king stood over that dynamite mine and mooned along about his damned onions and things. At first the tumult of my own thoughts, summoned by the danger signal and swarming to the rescue from every quarter of my skull, kept up such a hurrah and confusion and fifing and drumming that I couldn't take in a word. But presently, when my mob of gathering plans began to crystallize and fall into position and form a line of battle, a sort of order and quiet ensued, and I caught the boom of the king's batteries, as if out of remote distance." were not the best way, methinks, albeit it is not to be denied that authorities differ as concerning this point, some contending that the onion is but an unwholesome berry when stricken early from the tree. 
The audience showed signs of life, and sought each other's eyes in a surprised and troubled way. While as others do yet maintain, with much show of reason, that this is not of necessity the case, instancing that plums and other like cereals do be always dug in the unripe state. The audience exhibited distinct distress, yes, and also fear. Yet are they clearly wholesome, the more especially when one doth assuage the asperities of their nature by admixture of the tranquilizing juice of the wayward cabbage. The wild light of terror began to glow in these men's eyes, and one of them muttered, these be errors every one god hath surely smitten the mind of this farmer i was in miserable apprehension i sat upon thorns and further instancing the known truth that in the case of animals the young which may be called the green fruit of the creature is the better all confessing that when a goat is ripe his fur doth heat and soar endgame his flesh the which defect, taken in connection with his several rancid habits, and fulsome appetites, and godless attitudes of mind, and bilious quality of morals, they rose and went for him, with a fierce shout, The one would betray us, the other is mad. Kill them! Kill them! They flung themselves upon us. What joy flamed up in the king's eye! He might be lame in agriculture, but this kind of thing was just in his line. He had been fasting long. He was hungry for a fight. He hit the blacksmith a crack under the jaw that lifted him clear off his feet and stretched him flat on his back. St. George for prison! And he downed the wheelwright. The mason was big, but I laid him out like nothing. The three gathered themselves up and came again, went down again, came again, and kept on repeating this with native British pluck until they were battered to jelly, reeling with exhaustion, and so blind that they couldn't tell us from each other. And yet they kept right on, hammering away with what might was left in them, hammering each other, for we stepped aside, and looked on while they rolled, and struggled, and gouged, and pounded, and bit, with the strict and wordless attention to business of so many bulldogs. We looked on without apprehension, for they were fast getting past ability to go for help against us, and the arena was far enough from the public road to be safe from intrusion. Well, while they were gradually playing out, it suddenly occurred to me to wonder what had become of Marco. I looked around. He was nowhere to be seen. Oh, but this was ominous. I pulled the king's sleeve, and we glided away and rushed for the hut. No Marco there, no Phyllis there. They had gone to the road for help, sure. I told the king to give his heels wings, and I would explain later. We made good time across the open ground, and as we darted into the shelter of the wood, I glanced back and saw a mob of excited peasants swarm into view, with Marco and his wife at their head. They were making a world of noise, but that couldn't hurt anybody. The wood was dense, and as soon as we were well into its depths, we would take to a tree and let them whistle. Ah, but then came another sound. Dogs! Yes, that was quite another matter. It magnified our contract. We must find running water. We tore along at a good gait, and soon left the sounds far behind and modified to a murmur. We struck a stream and darted into it. We waded swiftly down it, in the dim forest light, for as much as three hundred yards, and then came across an oak with a great bough sticking out of the water. We climbed up on this bough, and began to work our way along it to the body of the tree. 
Now we began to hear those sounds more plainly, so the mob had struck our trail. For a while the sounds approached pretty fast, and then for another while they didn't. No doubt the dogs had found the place where we had entered the stream, and were now waltzing up and down the shores trying to pick up the trail again. When we were snugly lodged in the tree and curtained with foliage, the king was satisfied, but I was doubtful. I believed we could crawl along a branch and get into the next tree, and I judged it worth while to try. We tried it, and made a success of it, though the king slipped, at the junction, and came near failing to connect. We got comfortable lodgment and satisfactory concealment among the foliage, and then we had nothing to do but listen to the hunt. Presently we heard it coming, and coming on the jump, too, yes, and down both sides of the stream. Louder! Louder! Next minute it swelled swiftly up into a roar of shoutings, barkings, tramplings, and swept by like a cyclone. "'I was afraid that the overhanging branch would suggest something to them,' said I. "'But I don't mind the disappointment. Come, my liege, it were well that we make good use of our time. We've flanked them.' dark is coming on presently. If we can cross the stream and get a good start, and borrow a couple of horses from somebody's pasture to use for a few hours, we shall be safe enough. We started down, and got nearly to the lowest limb, when we seemed to hear the hunt returning. We stopped to listen. "'Yes,' said I, "'they're baffled. They've given it up, and they're on their way home. We will climb back to our roost again, and let them go by.' So we climbed back. The king listened a moment, and said, "'They still search. I wit the sign. We did best to abide.' He was right. He knew more about hunting than I did. The noise approached steadily, but not with a rush. The king said, "'They reason that we were advantaged by no parlous start of them, and being on foot are as yet no mighty way from where we took the water.' "'Yes, sire, that is about it, I'm afraid, though I was hoping better things.' The noise drew nearer and nearer, and soon the van was drifting under us, on both sides of the water. A voice called a halt from the other bank, and said, "'And they were so minded, they could get to yon tree by this branch that overhangs, and yet not touch ground. Ye will do well to send a man up it. Marry, that we will do.' I was obliged to admire my cuteness in foreseeing this very thing and swapping trees to beat it. But, don't you know, there are some things that can beat smartness and foresight. Awkwardness and stupidity can. The best swordsman in the world doesn't need to fear the second best swordsman in the world. No, the person for him to be afraid of is some ignorant antagonist who has never had a sword in his hand before. He doesn't do the thing he ought to do, and so the expert isn't prepared for him. He does the thing he ought not to do, and often it catches the expert out and ends him on the spot. Well, how could I, with all my gifts, make any valuable preparation against a near-sighted, cross-eyed, pudding-headed clown who would aim himself at the wrong tree and hit the right one? And that is what he did. He went for the wrong tree, which was, of course, the right one by mistake, and up he started. Matters were serious now. We remained still and awaited developments. The peasant toiled his difficult way up. The king raised himself up and stood. He made a leg ready, and when the comer's head arrived in reach of it, there was a dull thud, and down went the man floundering to the ground. There was a wild outbreak of anger below, and the mob swarmed in from all around, and there we were, treed, and prisoners. Another man started up, the bridging bow was detected, and a volunteer started up the tree that furnished the bridge. 
the king ordered me to play Horatius and keep the bridge. For a while the enemy came thick and fast, but no matter, the headman of each procession always got a buffet that dislodged him as soon as he came in reach. The king's spirits rose, his joy was limitless. He said that if nothing occurred to mar the prospect, we should have a beautiful night, for on this line of tactics we could hold the tree against the whole countryside. However, the mob soon came to that conclusion themselves, wherefore they called off the assault and began to debate other plans. They had no weapons, but there were plenty of stones, and stones might answer. We had no objections. A stone might possibly penetrate to us once in a while, but it wasn't very likely. We were well protected by boughs and foliage, and were not visible from any good aiming point. If they would but waste half an hour in stone-throwing, the dark would come to our help. We were feeling very well satisfied. We could smile, almost laugh. But we didn't. Which was just as well, for we should have been interrupted. Before the stones had been raging through the leaves and bouncing from the boughs fifteen minutes, we began to notice a smell. A couple of sniffs of it was enough of an explanation. It was smoke. Our game was up at last. We recognized that. When smoke invites you, you have to come. They raised their pile of dry brush and damp weeds higher and higher, and when they saw the thick cloud begin to roll up and smother the tree, they broke out in a storm of joy clamors. I got enough breath to say, Proceed, my liege, after you is manners. The king gasped. Follow me down, and then back thyself against one side of the trunk, and leave me the other. Then will we fight. Let each pile his dead according to his own fashion and taste. Then he descended, barking and coughing, and I followed. I struck the ground an instant after him. We sprang to our appointed places, and began to give and take with all our might. The powwow and racket were prodigious. It was a tempest of riot and confusion, and thick-falling blows. Suddenly some horsemen tore into the midst of the crowd, and a voice shouted, "'Hold! Or ye are dead men!' How good it sounded! The owner of the voice bore all the marks of a gentleman picturesque and costly raiment, the aspect of command, a hard countenance with complexion and features marred by dissipation. The mob fell humbly back, like so many spaniels. The gentleman inspected us critically, then said sharply to the peasants, "'What are ye doing to these people?' "'They be madmen, worshipful sir, that have come wandering we know not whence, and—' "'Ye know not whence? Do ye pretend ye know them not?' most honored sir we speak but the truth they are strangers and unknown to any in this region and they be the most violent and bloodthirsty madmen that ever peace ye know not what ye say they are not mad who are ye and whence are ye explain we are but peaceful strangers sir i said and travelling upon our own concerns we are from a far country and unacquainted here we have proposed no harm, and yet, but for your brave interference and protection, these people would have killed us. As you have divined, sir, we are not mad, neither are we violent or bloodthirsty. The gentleman turned to his retinue, and said calmly, "'Lash me these animals to their kennels.' The mob vanished in an instant, and after them plunged the horsemen, laying about them with their whips, and pitilessly riding down such as were witless enough to keep the road, instead of taking to the bush." The shrieks and supplications presently died away in the distance, and soon the horsemen began to straggle back. Meantime the gentleman had been questioning us more closely, but had dug no particulars out of us. 
we were lavish of recognition of the service he was doing us but we revealed nothing more than that we were friendless strangers from a far country when the escort were all returned the gentleman said to one of his servants bring the lead horses and mount these people yes my lord we were placed toward the rear among the servants we traveled pretty fast and finally drew rein some time after dark at a roadside inn some ten or twelve miles from the scene of our troubles my lord went immediately to his room after ordering his supper and we saw no more of him at dawn in the morning we breakfasted and made ready to start my lord's chief attendant sauntered forward at that moment with indolent grace and said ye have said ye should continue upon this road which is our direction likewise wherefore my lord the earl grip hath given commandment that ye retain the horses and ride and that certain of us ride with ye a twenty mile to a fair town that hight cambenet when so ye shall be out of peril we could do nothing less than express our thanks and accept the offer we jogged along six in the party at a moderate and comfortable gait and in conversation learned that my lord grip was a very great personage in his own region which lay a day's journey beyond cambenet we loitered to such a degree that it was near the middle of the forenoon when we entered the market square of the town we dismounted and left our thanks once more for my lord and then approached a crowd assembled in the centre of the square to see what might be the object of interest it was the remnant of that old peregrinating band of slaves so they had been dragging their chains about all this weary time that poor husband was gone and also many others and some few purchases had been added to the gang the king was not interested and wanted to move along but i was absorbed and full of pity i could not take my eyes away from these worn and wasted wrecks of humanity there they sat grounded upon the ground silent uncomplaining with bowed heads a pathetic sight and by hideous contrast a redundant orator was making a speech to another gathering not thirty steps away in fulsome laudation of our glorious british liberties i was boiling i had forgotten i was a plebeian i was remembering i was a man cost what it might i would mount that rostrum and click the king and i were handcuffed together our companions those servants had done it my lord grip stood looking on the king burst out in fury and said what meaneth this ill-mannered jest my lord merely said to his head miscreant coolly put up the slaves and sell them slaves the word had a new sound and how unspeakably awful the king lifted his manacles and brought them down with a deadly force but my lord was out of the way when they arrived a dozen of the rascal's servants sprang forward, and in a moment we were helpless, with our hands bound behind us. We so loudly and so earnestly proclaimed ourselves freemen that we got the interested attention of that liberty-mouthing orator and his patriotic crowd, and they gathered about us and assumed a very determined attitude. The orator said, "'If indeed ye are freemen, ye have naught to fear.' the god-given liberties of britain are about ye for your shield and shelter applause ye shall soon see bring forth your proofs what proofs proof that ye are freemen ah i remembered i came to myself i said nothing but the king stormed out thou art insane man it were better and more in reason that this thief and scoundrel here prove that we are not freemen 
You see, he knew his own laws just as other people so often know the laws, by words, not by effects. They take a meaning and get to be very vivid when you come to apply them to yourself. All hands shook their heads and looked disappointed. Some turned away, no longer interested. The orator said, and this time in the tones of business, not of sentiment, "'An ye do not know your country's laws, it were time ye learned them. Ye are strangers to us. Ye will not deny that. Ye be free men. We do not deny that. But also ye may be slaves. The law is clear. It doth not require the claimant to prove ye are slaves. It requireth you to prove ye are not.' I said, "'Dear sir, give us only time to send to Astolat or give us only time to send to the valley of holiness peace good man these are extraordinary requests and you may not hope to have them granted it would cost much time and would unwarrantly inconvenience your master master idiot stormed the king i have no master i myself am the m silence for god's sake i got the words out in time to stop the king we were in trouble enough already it could not help us any to give these people the notion that we were lunatics. There is no use in stringing out the details. The Earl put us up and sold us at auction. This same infernal law had existed in our own South in my own time, more than thirteen hundred years later, and under it hundreds of free men, who could not prove that they were free men, had been sold into lifelong slavery without the circumstance making any particular impression upon me but the minute law and the auction-block came into my personal experience. A thing which had been merely improper before became suddenly hellish. Well, that's the way we are made. Yes, we were sold at auction, like swine. In a big town and an active market we should have brought a good price, but this place was utterly stagnant, and so we sold at a figure which makes me ashamed every time I think of it. The King of England brought seven dollars and his prime minister nine, whereas the king was easily worth twelve dollars, and I, as easily, worth fifteen. But that is the way things always go. If you force a sale in a dull market, I don't care what the property is, you are going to make a poor business of it, and you can make up your mind to it. If the earl had had wit enough to— However, there is no occasion for my working my sympathies up on his account. Let him go for the present. I took his number, so to speak. The slave-dealer bought us both, and hitched us on to the long chain of his, and we constituted the rear of his procession. We took up our line of march, and passed out of Cambonet at noon, and it seemed to me unaccountably strange and odd that the King of England and his chief minister, marching manacled and fettered and yoked in a slave-convoy, could move by all manner of idle men and women, and under windows where sat the sweet and the lovely, and yet never attract a curious eye, never provoke a single remark. Dear, dear, it only shows that there is nothing diviner about a king than there is about a tramp, after all. He is just a cheap and hollow artificiality when you don't know he is a king, but reveal his quality, and dear me, it takes your very breath away to look at him. I reckon we are all fools. Born so, no doubt. End of chapter 34